This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance, uh, podcast number 48. I hope that's correct. Uh, with me, uh, Varun Mater in uh, New Delhi. Hi, Varun. Hi, John. Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Near Toronto. Hi, John. Um, Hiroyuki Hamada, once again, in New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. How are you doing? Uh, and Johan Edebo in Sweden. Johan, hi. Good evening. Hi. Um, <clears throat> so so um, there is really a, an enormous amount of stuff to talk about. And I want to open, I wanted to read a quote from Eric Fromm. And I also wanted to mention that, that um, we've gotten a lot of letters, letters, emails. I have gotten a number of emails in regards to the podcast, really supportive and, and uh, uh, complimentary. And, and it was very nice from all over the world, uh, from, from East Africa, from Ireland, uh, <clears throat> a number from the United States, New York City firefighter wrote me. Uh, all of which is very encouraging, and it's, it's believe me, I certainly appreciate uh, getting these letters. I think everybody involved in the podcast does, so uh, that's been very nice. All right, let me um, let me read this from quote. It shouldn't take too long. It's maybe two minutes worth of three minutes worth of reading. Um, this is from Escape from Freedom. And I forget the year this was written, but it's quite a while ago. It's 50 years ago, probably. Uh, and it's in sort of three kind of separate chunks, okay? Modern European and American history is centered around the effort to gain freedom from the political, economic, and spiritual shackles that have bound men. The battles for freedom were fought by the oppressed, those who wanted new liberties, against those who had privileges to defend. While a class was fighting for its own liberation from domination, it believed itself to be fighting for human freedom as such, and thus was able to appeal to an ideal, to the longing for freedom rooted in all who are oppressed. In the long and virtually continuous battle for freedom, however, classes that were fighting against oppression at one stage sided with the enemies of freedom when victory was won and new privileges were to be defended. He quotes Dostoevsky from Brothers Karamazov. He has no more pressing need than the one to find somebody to whom he can surrender as quickly as possible, that gift of freedom which he, the unfortunate creature, was born with. Close quote. Authority does not have to be a person or institution which says you have to do this or you are not allowed to do that. While this kind of authority may be called external authority, Authority can appear as internal authority under the name of duty, conscience, or superego. As a matter of fact, the development of modern thinking from Protestantism to Kant's philosophy 
can be characterized as the substitution of internalized authority for an external one. With the political victories of the rising middle class, external authority lost prestige and man's own conscience assumed the place which external authority once had held. This change appeared to many as the victory of freedom to submit to orders from the outside, at least in spiritual matters, appeared to be unworthy of a free man. But the conquest of his natural inclinations and the establishment of the domination of one part of the individual, his nature, by another, his reason, will, or conscience, seemed to be the very essence of freedom. Analysis shows that conscience rules with a harshness as great as external authorities. And furthermore, that frequently the contents of the orders issued by man's conscience are ultimately not governed by demands which have assumed the dignity of ethical norms. The rulership of conscience can be even harsher than that of external authorities since the individual feels its orders to be his own, how can he rebel against himself? In recent decades, conscience has lost much of its significance. It seems as though neither external nor internal authorities play any prominent role in the individual's life. Everybody is completely free if only he does not interfere with other people's legitimate claims. But what we find is rather that instead of disappearing, authority has made itself invisible. Instead of overt authority, anonymous authority reigns. It is disguised as common sense, science, psychic health, normality, public opinion. It does not demand anything except the self-evident. It seems to use no pressure, but only mild persuasion. Whether a mother says to her daughter, I know you will not like to go out with that boy, or an advertisement suggests, smoke this brand of cigarettes, you will like their coolness. It is the same atmosphere of subtle suggestion which actually pervades our whole social life. Anonymous authority is more effective than overt authority since one never suspects there is any order which one is expected to follow. And then this final quote from a different section here about destructiveness. Um, it would seem that the amount of destructiveness to be found in individuals is proportionate to the amount to which expansiveness of life is curtailed. By this, we do not refer to individual frustrations of this or that instinctive desire, but to the thwarting of the whole of life, the blockage of spontaneity, of the growth and expression of man's sensuous, emotional, and intellectual capacities. Life has an inner dynamism of its own. It tends to grow, to be expressed, to be lived. It seems that if this tendency is thwarted, the energy directed toward life undergoes a process of decomposition and changes into energies directed toward destruction. In other words, the drive for life and the drive for destruction are not mutually independent factors, 
but are in a reversed interdependence. The more the drive toward life is thwarted, the stronger is the drive toward destruction. The more life is realized, the less is the strength of destructiveness. Destructiveness is the outcome of unlived life. That's the end of the, the quote. Um, and, and one thing, I will turn it over to you guys, but, but one thing that struck me was, um, because he goes on in, in the early chapter from, that is, goes on a lot about the, when people feel alone, the sense of loneliness or isolation uh, breeds this turn towards destructiveness, resentment, envy, um, uh, irrational uh, fantasies of, of, of revenge and, and paranoia, all sorts of things, right? And, and I think that, that, that what we are seeing, <clears throat> in a sense, after two years of, of various degrees of lockdowns and, and restrictions, lifting of restrictions, lifting of lockdowns, reimposition of lockdowns, reimposition of uh, I think of it, I think all of this has had a much deeper effect on people than than most anyone realizes. I think we are looking at populations uh, primed for for a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Primed to to trend towards destructiveness mm -hmm. rather than anything else. I, I hear and I see people express things that are against their self-interest all the time. Uh, and and I, there was an LA playwright posted something about <clears throat> applauding the LA theater critics saying that that only vaccinated actors should get on stage. And I thought you were you are you are you are supporting the killing of theater. You are you're supposed to be part of that community. Um, but so fearful, so isolated, so traumatized is this public that I think they have lost um, a, a, the you know the personal compass uh, for for their own i their own interests, their own self interest. It's 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 staggering actually. Okay, Johan. Yeah, that, that's uh, I think that's a quite profound uh, quote, and there's much to the. I I also believe that we're going to see huge effects of, of these uh, these new social structures that are being erected, and th there's really something important in this recognition that that we don't really have guilt anymore that is anchored in a conscience like perhaps people did in, in previous eras <clears throat> that you even saw in the in the 60s and 70s that our neuroses became quite different from from those seen in early psychoanalysis and so on and and also i think it relates to the fact that conscience must be predicated upon some form of, of, of moral realism and i had a discussion i think yesterday about the the whether or not uh, morality is subjective or objective and and almost everybody I, I spoke with almost reflexively assumed a relativism all although they kind of anchored moral norms in some kind of idea of evolutionary progress and and scientific development and perfection like the, the only good thing in in reality is evolutionary perfection and our knowledge of it so I, I wouldn't be surprised if this situation would 
kind of predicate some some new form of, of guilt in people for, for not following the science you know <clears throat> yeah i <clears throat> i i was quite struck with when when in the from quote he mentioned science the self-evident common sense these things mm. have taken on um an outsized importance i think in 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 general in in contemporary society uh the the tyranny of common sense of, i mean has been critiqued a lot already of course and but it but it but it's very true and but we're, we're entering i mean we all know we talk um <clears throat> we're not on the podcast we actually do talk to each other um a lot and and uh We've all experienced this week social media threads uh, with with people just blindly, irrationally defending, uh, you know, really draconian, uh, like in Australia, New Zealand. Um, and one guy was was defending Anthony Fauci, my boy, Tony Fauci. And this is somebody who self-identifies as a leftist, you know. I the mind reels. I, 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 something has happened. Something has happened out there, and it's, um, it's, it's something that I guess we we need to talk about and think about. And and I don't have ready answers. There are no ready answers. But anyway, um, Corey, anything? Sure. Uh, um, yeah, I would like to. Since we're talking, since you actually mentioned Australia, um, I wanted to give sort of a quick run through on the numbers there and just a little bit of overview. As people have probably seen, there was a news clip off of a television media station in Australia, and it was, um, I'm sure you've all seen it. It's actually amazing. It's almost, you know, it's, you can't believe it's real. It's like a Black Mirror episode. And in the in the news, they're actually um, filming a person in a hospital who is a quote unquote COVID patient getting in the hospital, and showing him like this is basically a terrorist, right? This is like they've put on you know an alert for everyone to be on the lookout, and then they have helicopters in the sky, looking for people, you know that you know possible COVID. <laughs> Um, convicts or whatever you call walking around and they show police arresting a, a young group of teenagers and they arrest them and they're all fined a thousand dollars a piece for you know being outside and, and socializing and it's just I mean it's unbelievable it's hard to believe it you know that it's real that it's happening um, and then of course there were um, protests all over the world again on the weekend um, France, Holland, Australia, I think 220 um, different protests in France and Amsterdam, Montreal. So resistance is growing, but yeah, here's just a quick little overview of Australia. So population of Australia, um, over 25 million people, deaths with COVID as with COVID, with COVID as of August 22nd, 2021. Age zero to nine, zero deaths. Age 10 to 19, one death. And that was, a, um, a, I believe, a boy with meningitis. Age 20 to 29, two. Age 30 to 39, four. Age 40 to 49, five. Age 50 to 59, 17. 
age 60 to 69.45, and then age 70 and above, um, 900 deaths. And then it's important um, with the 900 to understand that 75% of these deaths actually occurred in long-term care homes. And that's um, that's over 75% of those deaths. And so this is over a thousand, just under a thousand, a thousand deaths with COVID in a country of over 25 million people. And so you can see this is not about health, um, you know, especially when you take into factor that most people, and this remains on the WHO website to this day, that most people will have mild to no symptoms and recover at home and, re and not require any special treatment at all. Um, you know, let alone the obvious fact that you're so sick that you have to be tested to even know if you're sick or not. You know, so it's a lot of, a lot of you know, I mean, this does, um, you know, very, very common sense and yet it's being rejected, right? Because this whole um, propaganda thing is so powerful and so strong. Um, so now what's interesting about Australia is that the same thing has happened ex almost exactly as what's happened in Canada and other country countries on um, influenza has disappeared. So August 16, 2021, the absence of influenza in the community has been described as amazing. And a month where flu cases are normally rising to a peak, no deaths have been reported anywhere in the country for the year to date. Oh. Um, so you have that. So that's absolutely insane. And then the year in 2019, you had 902 deaths. In um, 2017, you had 1181. But now it's flu is zero, right? More than a year since Australia's last flu death. So that's, you know, another great big red flag. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious. Um, yeah, so anyway, and then I we talked about in Canada again last week um, on the podcast, how there was, um, what was it? Um, 21,005 laboratory confirmed influenza by this time in 2020 with 36 deaths. In 2019, there had been 2,000, or sorry, 214,377 and 486 deaths. So this is in Canada, which is another Commonwealth um, country, right? Colonized, occupied. And we see the same disappearance of not only the flu, but the RSV, which we talked about last week, which is now making headlines because soon they're going to have the RSV vaccine and they'll be wanting to inject or whatever it is, not a vaccine, but an injection, and they'll want be wanting to inject that into children. Um, so anyway, what, what we see across the globe, um, children and youth serve as the sacrificial lands for ushering in the fourth revolution architecture and the societal transformation that's required to endure this um, very architecture. So they're experimental subjects for the fourth industrial revolution biotech, which is the bioengineering economy going forward. If you look at Australia's Health 2020, again, this all these stats are from the um, government website, the Australia government website. Suicide is the leading cause of death amongst people aged 15 to 24 and 25 to 44. So children and youth are the collateral damage, um, you know, the Machiavellian and justifies the means. Um, now, this leads into um, what's very interesting. 
um, another partnership with McKinsey. Now, we spoke, I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago in our podcast about McKinsey at the helm of the pandemic structure in Ontario, Canada. Well, Victoria government um, made a, like a secret deal with um, some sort of, I mean, they can't even get these documents through, through the Freedom of Information Act, apparently, but they were paid um, McKinsey $50 million sort of to come up with this um, scheme that no one knows that much about, but it's to kickstart domestic manufacturing of RM, R, sorry, of mRNA vaccine technology. Um, so basically biotech infrastructure, which will be the first production site in the Southern hemisphere. Now, if everyone remembers World Economic Forum's strategic partner is McKinsey, and here we have them again at the helm. And so I, I'm just starting to wonder, I downloaded a paper, people should download it and find it. It's the, execu it's, um, the executive summary, it's called the bio, let me just get it so people can find it properly. So it's the bio revolution, innovations transform economies, societies, and our lives. That's May, 2020. And um, yeah, and so in it, we're talking about the new, you know, all the coming gene editing, um, basically the gene editing of all biological life, all biology, all life, whether it's, you know, plant, human, um, all life going forward. And, um, you know, they say, however, the risks from these innovations are profound and unique. Biological systems self-replicate, are self-sustaining, and are highly interconnected. Changes to one part of a system ha can have cascading effects and unintended consequences across an entire ecosystem or species. But I mean, the arrogance is so vast that they go forward anyway. I mean, these people are actually so depraved that they actually believe that they can do better, you know, than, than nature herself. <clears throat> And so again, very patriarchal, very human centric. I mean, just um, absolutely depraved. And this is, and this is where it's going. This is what people are supporting, right? Like this is what is behind um, all this madness, all this shaming, all this, you know, um, strategic um, division within us. I mean, we have to unite against this and push back. But instead, as always, they're they're very very clever and very um, smart, and they know how to divide us. Um, yeah, yeah, so anyway, I'm just starting to wonder, I think McKinsey, they're also behind um, what's called the global, or, sorry, what's it called? Um, hang on, I'm almost done here. Um, <laughs> I know, sorry, really. Um, it's the One World Government sub Summit. Um, had by McKinsey. Oh, right. um, yeah. It has all the media, Bloomberg, New York Times behind it. Um, so anyway, that's another thing. World Economic Forum's involved. I mean, this stuff is, you know, white papers. There's websites for this stuff. It's not secret. Just everyone's completely, they know how to, what they call herd cats. And they know how to distract people and divide people and keep people's, um, you know, busy. So they're not even looking at uh, what's actually what they're working on, right? Like they're not scared and talking about COVID. They don't give it, they can care less. They're working on right. the big stuff. Right. <clears throat> well, there's some kind of, there's some kind of uh, compartmentalizing, I think that happens in a lot of people who will, who will you can have a you can have a dialogue with them about 
um, the the mendacity of of you know corporations in general, of neoliberalism, of 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 you know the shock doctrine and and austerity policies and all of this. This stuff has 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 been incorporated into the, into the the collective vocabulary now. It's part of the discourse. Everybody knows this stuff is bad, and and uh, they they will nod in agreement if if you talk about it. Uh, but if you then shift pivot, Obama's favorite word, right? If you pivot um, to uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, this this One World Summit, which was that in Saudi Arabia? I don't know. No, the, not One World, One Government, One Government one Summit. One Government, One Government. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you, if you pivot to that and you start talking about uh, the, the emerging market that is biotechnology and uh, the the sort of unrestrained unregulated mining interests that are going on deep sea mining and so forth this scramble for rare earth minerals that you see taking place um and 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 then you start to try to connect that with with contemporary government policy with lockdowns with covid with what has happened during the lockdowns, the, the plundering of state assets and 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 the monopolization of, of retail, the the um, sort of strip mining of of you know mom and pop businesses, uh, and and that there there was an attendant suffering along with that when with homelessness depression you know uh, uh self-harm spousal abuse alcoholism drug overdoses suicide etc 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 there it it doesn't register i'm finding people don't make this connection to the lockdown they will then turn to you and say but but they're just trying to control the pandemic but what about the pandemic? But people are dying in the pandemic. And, and one of the problems, of course, is that the people that we're talking about, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, but also, you know, organizations like the Trilateral Commission, et cetera, et cetera. These people um, are, are, they're not perceived as as malevolent forces necessarily and most people find it too tiresome to to tweeze apart all of the stuff that you just read Corey. i mean they, they that's probably very difficult for most people they're not interested if you told them you have a cool new app that you know never mind that that will you know in invade their privacy and and uh put all of their life's history online or something. a lot of people a lot of people don't have a problem with that and but here we run into the class division again mm. i think because the working class certainly a good portion the majority of the working class wants nothing to do with this shit the majority of the working class sees through AI, I think. Um, they don't trust any of it. 
they work with their hands, they go out into the world daily. It is the malignancy of the sort of educated bourgeoisie that is the real problem. And these <sighs> people were very visible in media. These are the influencers and celebrities and, and uh, they're the people that have signed on to this because they benefit from it. And they just had a, another video with, uh, I don't remember where it was, but a whole bunch of uh, very wealthy millionaire types. May have been Nancy Pelosi was part of it. Um, having a party, sitting around, not a mask in sight, except on the waiters. And you show that to people and it just does not register. It's not, it doesn't register. And I, I don't know why. Um, Johan, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you just answered the, the question I was going to pose, but <clears throat> because I, I think that there is this curious absence of criticism from the left. Uh, but, but I think it's not, it's not just about most people. I mean, you have a, even, I think your, your point explains a lot of it. The class divide is a significant uh, factor here, but even a guy like, <clears throat> like you know, Richard Seymour, whom I, I admire to, to some extent, and I, he's a really brilliant guy and, and a better researcher than most, but even he has kind of gone over to this vaccine equity discussion and, and in some sense now like works for free producing ads for, for big pharma, even though he does know better. And even if right, I mean, right. except every facet of this, uh, this narrative, there is still so much to criticize and to, to be cautious about. And yet there are so few voices from the, the traditional or self-identified left. Well, I have a something of a history with Seymour. Not really. I used to to be. Um, um, I used to read his blog a lot and and have some discussions with him. Uh, I wasn't the, the most visible there, but I did. It was during the the Balkan conflict when I first started reading him. Um, he's a very ambitious guy. He, he's a very smart guy. Uh, the Twittering Machine is a very good book on social. The, 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 a book on social media about social media is very good. I recommend it highly. But but he has always been extraordinarily ambitious as well. Yeah. And um, he's he's the better version of Sunkara, the guy who runs Jacobin, you know, who is who is just yeah. slime. But um, but Seymour isn't. I think it must be conflicting for him somehow. But look, the the whole, you know, we look at all the black agenda report, Jacobin counterpunch, um, uh, most recently, uh, Stephen Gowans, who, who I admire greatly, all of them, all of them, uh, you know, want to talk about vaccine imperialism. We have to get the vaccine to the third world. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know what to, I don't entirely know what to say about that. I mean, part of it, of course, is explained by the Trump factor. I get mm. that. Uh, I do in the United States. I get that nobody nobody wanted to be associated with trump and it was seen through the prism as was everything through the prism of donald trump and this alt-right mythology and so forth uh but um but but people who as you say should know better who who absolutely should know better uh don't for some reason and that's that's something worth pondering i think corey 
Well, I wanted to bring in this number low when you were talking about the vaccine imperialism, which again, I, that really pisses me right off because I mean, these are, these are liberals that can't ever get that word to roll off their tongue right until now. And so that really, really pisses me off when I started seeing it. I, I was like, Oh, what? Oh, you know, the left, they're finally talking about, um, vaccine imperialism, but of course it was like double, double, what's it, what's the 1984, um, speak, right? Where now it's mm. like, um, inverted to mean the opposite things. Mm. So anyway, um, Brookings Institute, low income and lower middle income countries account for almost half the global population, but they make, make up only 2% of all the global death toll attributed to COVID-19. So why do wow. they need vaccines? Wow. Why? They know we need, we all know disease is kept at bay with sanitation and clean water something we still cannot provide in 2021. It's disgusting. It's pathetic. That's imperialism, right? That's um, mm -hmm. colonial conquest. So still at work, still um, at play. And I just also wanted to say, this is another systemic, when, when we talked about, I think on that thread, 78% of all the COVID cases in the United States, the CDC reported, um, you know, yearly, according to Marty Makari, um, that those numbers, 78% were overweight or obese, right? So what we're talking about is a systemic problem. And um, that's, you know, capitalism, that's processed food, industrial food, right? That's um, people are victims of the system. And then here we have it again. Why do we only have half the global population, 50% makes up 50%, but only 2% of the global toll? Well, when you look at the Western countries and you see that the majority of the deaths were from neglect, from privatization of long-term care centers, People in the global south don't, you know, largely do not put their elderly in long-term care centers. They care for them in their homes. So again, it's systemic and it's um, systemic of the capitalist system, you know, which serves um, capital and and, and not people. And so there's so much of this is systemic and we're not looking at it. We're not paying attention to it. And then just one more thing I wanted to add um, what you were saying about um, you know, the, the influencers and everything. Like when I read white, um, when I read the white papers and read all the stuff I read, never once have I come across where, um, the corporations and the foundations and the NGOs have, you know, um, World Economic Forum, who have you, they never talk about getting, um, working class people, you know, to come and, 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 um, you know, work with them and sit at the table. They never talk about getting, on the peasantry to come in and work with them and sit the table and all that. It's, they are fearful of the working class. They are fearful of the peasantry. They're fearful of the working class uniting with the peasantry and revolting against the, the system, their system. And as Hiroyuki says, it's their house that is on fire. And yeah, yeah so anyway. I'm, no, I'm but so that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that's an important point. Idea. We've talked about it before, but it it is the the working class is invisible like never before. I remember Joe Badgett used to talk about the Democratic Party abandoning its its working class roots, and and but we're so far beyond that now. Uh, these are people who who 
don't just fear workers and the poor, they hate them, they have contempt for them. Uh, and when you think about it, if you step back and think about it a little bit, and you think about media, Hollywood, representations of workers, the way news treats stories about the working class and so forth, um, you realize that contempt has, has been extant for for at least 25 years, overtly, openly, unapologetically contemptuous of the poor. They don't like them. They don't want them in their neighborhoods. They don't want them at their dinner parties. They would love to be able to go to sporting events and cultural activities and not have to see the poor. They are unseemly. And, and um, when, when the subject is brought up, the response is always, obscenely paternalistic, just nakedly paternalistic and condescending. You know, they like to see themselves as virtuous and compassionate, um, though, but it's, it's the compassion of the kindly plantation owner. That's all. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Varun, Hiroyuki. Either. I was just, I was yeah. just reading that um, in, the, in the last couple of days, I think there have been video messages floating around from Australian truck drivers that have taken to various social media platforms indicating that they're going to go on strike to choke the supply chains in order to reclaim the country against the tyranny. So wow. that's something that they're planning to do. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add quickly about, uh, I think from what I've understood living in India that the I'm just going to go back to guilt just for a second. In the sense that yeah, yeah. Um, poverty, poverty always meant guilt, like there was something wrong with you. So you had to be rectified <laughs> and you had to be taught the right things in the sense like you had to be civilized. And that was essentially the industrial project, right? And I think that has now changed over the last year and a half. That it's not no longer so much about how much money you make, but how good of an order follower you have become. So that that's that's become the new currency in that sense. So that the guilt has been um, <clears throat> it has been pinned onto something else now entirely, and I think that becomes part of a larger project of um, the social credit system being put into place, the handouts from the government um, for keeping people jobless or giving them tasks that they want people to do. You know, like things like that. I think that's where. That's where. That's how I'm seeing the narrative is changing. That's I think I'm that's thinking. right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Hiroyuki. Well, I'm sort of digesting uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all the points uh, uh, pointed out. Um, I really think uh, what Corey said is totally spot on in terms of the. Uh, situation with the uh, global south and um, uh, what the west is engaging and uh, that of course echoes within the uh, uh, western societies um, and uh, uh, we're facing difficult time um, being divided uh, being uh, feeling the uh, aggression among ourselves um, and um, yeah, it's it's really. Uh, I don't really know what to say. It's it's really. Uh, I mean, it's so obvious. Um, um, we talk about the uh, 
what the uh, the plans are, um, all those uh, great things about uh, gene therapy solving everything and uh, uh, possibilities of uh, uh, those medical measures. But the, if you look at the first step, the vaccine, I mean, it, it, it's not that great. I mean, <laughs> the way it's implemented is totally draconian and uh, I, there are collateral damages everywhere on every layers. So we can kind of guess that this whole thing is sort of going toward uh, what we've seen with uh, like nuclear power. No, it's an interesting comparison. You know, all the promise, great future, the energy uh, crisis is solved and and you know, we went through the uh, the Fukushima in Japan. Uh, they're still hanging on to it. There's no solution because the solution, actual, the reason why they went on to the nuclear uh, power is that that was the, the insurance. That was the nuclear weapon. They they accumulate those uh, plutonium to make. Uh, you know, defense right. capability. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's all everything's based on lies, and 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 it's within the uh, framework of imperialism. You know what they say um, is not really really meant uh, to be uh, what they say. So it's a. Uh, and it's it's so obvious again, you know. <laughs> well, I I just want to make I, I and then I'll go to you, Johan. I just wanted like a sidebar observation about Afghanistan. Um, the United States is not really leaving Afghanistan, okay? Um, in 2018, private contractors, that means people like Blackwater, outnumbered U.S. military personnel two to one in Afghanistan. It was always um, a low-priority war. It served a, a, a sort of propaganda purpose in 2001, and after that, it was simply... Um, of, of sort of geopolitical importance, the location and so forth. Mm. Um, and suddenly, oh, the Taliban's overrunning the country as if this were a surprise. Of course they're overrunning the country. The United States has, has been in contact with them. They know the leadership. The Taliban, I noticed the other day there was a video of um, uh, Taliban elite forces and they were high stepping in unison, like hundreds and hundreds of them down the street in these brand new shiny white sort of Saudi like uniforms. And I thought, damn, you know, um, they've, they've um, shaped up quite a bit in the last 20 years, haven't they? And who's paying for these uniforms exactly? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just transparent like rebranding and it's it's an absurdity and it's laughable and uh that's the end of the sidebar johan yeah and also i mean now we have the trans afghanistan pipeline and we have uh, the restored the opium production and all that so i mean i guess mission accomplished to some extent uh, i was just meaning to, to ask you about uh, uh, somebody asked me why, why I, I think not more doctors and specialists are speaking up regarding this this disconnect between fact and um, and the official narrative, because they they think they should know better that they're privy to this specialist esoteric knowledge and should they should know better. I think the answer, at least in the West, is that oftentimes medical 
personnel really do not know better because they're narrow and often in a way more propagandized than the general population because they are immersed in this um, strong ideological environment with, with massive authority of which they actually vicariously take part and so on. But I, I was wondering whether this is also the, the sense you get in India if there are or if there, there are very, very many doctors speaking up or what kind of, is, is it the same social status we have, we're dealing with in, the, in the, that sense or, or what do you see there? Um, <clears throat> so there has there's been over the last year and a half, a few people who have been uh, talking very openly about Ayurveda and natural mm -hmm. cures for lung infections and body problems and things like this. Some of them have uh, have studied Ayurveda at university, but they are not doctors yet. But there are a few Hindi-speaking doctors who've got uh, who've got channels on YouTube that are putting out content against this narrative continuously. And there are there are three of them who I know who have been doing a pretty good job, and they have a pretty decent following given the size of the cities that we live in. Mm. Um, but largely speaking, the official narrative is the one that doctors follow in corporate hospitals and in government hospitals. It's mandates and it's also, I think, largely to do, it's an identity question, I mm. think, at the end of the day, yeah. because it's more, it's more to do with how the psyche and the gestalt is kind of structured, which is to say that statism is primary hmm. experience comes secondary so um the the gaze towards the self so to speak has been has always been colonized hmm. so it is always looked at i mean you're always looking at the self or the culture from western eyes so to hmm. speak and hmm. so with the marriage between traditionalism and Western medicine, not science, but Western medicine, there are only very few people that I personally know who would who would propagate that. Hmm. And there is a very long drawn example that maybe I can give you another time, but um, there's a doctor who's a surgeon who had leukemia and then ultimately had to go down to Kerala to, to, a, to a guy who lives in a forest and only speaks hmm. one language. And, Ultimately, after two rounds of chemotherapy, that is the thing that actually got rid of the cancer from his body. Huh. So it's a very interesting kind of, it's a very interesting place in that sense because ultimately a lot of people do fall back on natural remedies automatically because it's built into the culture. Hmm. So people are giving you remedies for all kinds of things all the time. And that's what is very strange about this time right now is that that is now slowly dis starting to disappear. That nobody's telling you, just go and drink some turmeric in some hot milk and you'll be fine. <laughs> or, eat, or eat some cloves and you'll go, you're gonna be okay. Or whatever, you know, like it's all come down to uh, these kind of debates between ivermectin and vaccinations and uh, remdesivir. And it's the psychological aspect of it has been absolutely traumatizing. And I don't use the word absolutely lightly here because it's been absolutely traumatizing. So the, the, the gear has been shifted entirely as far as I can see. Wow. Yeah. 
you know, the one of the one of the people who sent me an email sent us sent aesthetic resistance email um, from from a place in South East Africa. I um, <clears throat> actually don't want to mention, but but uh, he mentioned that in his country there was uh, a growing network around uh, a, a natural healing method, a, a, a part of the folk culture and that it had been effective and so forth. And um, I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think that's very interesting. And this brings us back to this, this discussion of science, you know, and, and somebody posted a mem the other day, if you're disagreeing with science, you're just wrong. That was, that was the mem, something to that effect. Uh, and I thought, but the, but the very nature of science is, is to ask questions, right? But this was, the implication was don't even ask, just do what you're told <laughs> because it's science. And, uh, and, and this has become, this has become a kind of new thing. This is a thing now. Uh, science was always revered. It was always the final authority uh that one would appeal to but scientists have done there have been studies that you know dogs like to eat this kind of dog food and then you just shut up because there was a study done uh but because there's so much incoherence and contradiction and 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 there's so many holes in the official story now that I feel like there has been a doubling down on this science. People, people insist, you know, stamp their feet and, and have tantrums about science uh, because, because they, if, if that's not true, if they, if they can't justify all of this by saying it's the science, trust the science, trust the science, then their entire worldview is, is, is going to fall apart. And, sure. And that's intolerable, right? And and so there is a there is a kind of desperation, this quiet desperation, um, which goes back to the the from quote again. But yeah, Corey, I see one. But yeah, I just it. wanted to. Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is psychological terror, you know, put upon the populace. I wanted to touch upon something actually, John, I saw it on your feed this week, and it was about an article I think was shared by ABC, ABC News um, Australia. Anyway, it was mainstream and it, it's about what I see as ex, um, extreme social isolation measures, how they're bringing in all of this through what, you know, um, Avaz purpose describes this new power where um, corporate entities and ruling class um, and their affiliations are able to leverage that power. They're able to actually create or, or just um, tap into the power and as they call it, to get what you want. So you harness and channel energy of people to get what you want. And that's what we're seeing here with the passports and um, biotech going forward. So um, anyway, I, I know I'm sort of jumping around here, but it was an article about 700 children being kept in a COVID ward in Australia away from their parents. And I can't, and I already um, spoke of the numbers of deaths there, which are, um, again, I think it was one, one death under 20 in children from meningitis. So to separate children from their parents, I mean, this, 
that I mean that must be a test right and so the articles are saying how yeah they will probably suffer long-term um, effects from this obviously they're very scared they don't know why they're there they don't know why they've been separated they're having no human contact with these children only through virtual means and I have to see this as a as a real life experiment being conducted in that ward with that many you know or in this hospital with that amount of children what else is this and I mean there's mere mention of it and this is the day by this is like day by day in real time the slow disintegration of human relationships this is parent-child bonds and physical community um, being restructured re-realized as the new normal right it's the digital world the digital world is constructed. And this new concept of um, normality in which biotechnology will rule and restrict our daily movement. So again, like we're there, it's incredible that they're using us again to push forward what they want to implement and, uh, and use to oppress us. So it's all like really, really messed up. And then just one more thing that's sort of, to, to just tell you again, like how insane this is, I found if from March 17, 2020, a BBC article, scientists in Australia say they, they have identified how the body's immune system fights the COVID-19 virus. Their research published in Nature Medicine Journal shows people are recovering from the new virus like they would from the flu. <laughs> Shock. Shocking. Shocking. Um, that this the children ward the children's ward story is just sadistic. I mean that's just sadism, and any remotely competent child psychologist would tell you that's sadistic and will cause enormous long-term psychological problems for those children. I mean there's just no justification for it, um, and and. Uh, you know, we this go. This is this is. You know, we only need remember the you know the Indian schools, um, so called, in the United States when when indigenous children were taken from their families and put in schools to civilize them, turn them into you know imitation white people. They did it in Australia, of course, too, with Aborigines. Um, that the colonial logic has never left uh, the West at all. And and it it what has happened the last two years it seems to me is is that a lot of latent latent beliefs and values and you know, sort of latent sensibilities have surfaced for all the all the many reasons all the forces unleashed by 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 the covid story and the policies the lockdowns the government's response this unprecedented crazy response uh, i mean the very fact that you know i had a debate on on social media the other day a friend of mine who's an actor and a bunch of people who were crazy uh i said i can't think of another time in history except for like the warsaw ghetto maybe in which Healthy people were segregated this way, quarantined. Uh, quarantine is for sick people, and and to keep them from infecting the rest of the population. It's it's not for segregating healthy people. So this is a this is a like a mass psyop or something because 
shutting down whole countries in the case of New Zealand and Australia for, for virtually nothing, one death, one case, um, is, is nakedly irrational and, and most clearly not about health. So, and then segregating children. I mean, my God, what, you know, what, I, uh, yeah, I don't know, Johan. Uh, yeah, I thought I could go back to the discussion uh, about the left, uh, and I, I would like to hear perhaps what you, what your perspective on this is, uh, Hiroyuki. Uh, you, you, you were part of some some Facebook thread I couldn't access, and I think you've been like bemoaning the the state and role of the left somewhat more than, than I'm used to. So, so I, I thought a bit about this issue uh, today. Uh, I actually I found this old pamphlet. Uh, from the 70s by some Swedish left-wing group that was advocating for solidarity with African nations and the languages of this pamphlet. It was harsh, but I think it was clear and it was also effectively trained on the, the organizational behavior of capital and especially of Swedish investments, both public and private. So while, while it was far from this high theory Marxist publication, I think it had its bearings pretty much right as it started from this basic analysis of property relations and the complex structures of exploitation that necessarily flow from, from fundamental imbalances of power. So you had Marxism 101 in this package. And I think, I think that this is basically gone from, from much of that which today is labeled the left. Uh, the left today popularly, I think, has, has very little relation to the actual theoretical analysis of, of Marx or even any preceding socialist or, or anarchist thinker, because they have like jettisoned this, this basic principle that the control of the means of production is the main determinant of, of society's power structure. Uh, and, and I mean, also, I think to some extent that scientism explains this recuperation of the left, because I would say that Today, the worldview of the, the self-identified popular left, to some, to some extent, re revolves around some, some kind of sharing of the, the goods, sharing of the results of capital's production, social justice idea, which is framed by a scientific mythology of indomitable technological pro progress that will raise all boats, which actually if not explicitly is connected to the machinery of capitalism. And the, the main problem is that this perspective cannot really identify the basic property relations and the power imbalance in them. I think that's really, I think that's really good. And, and, and I agree. And it's strange though, because I, th I think, I think that's true and it's, but there are other things too that have happened to the left, maybe because, and this is true, a lot of the topics we are introducing, we are up against a massive propaganda machine mm. that has a great deal more money and access and influence and exposure than, than the voices of dissent. And, and so it's an uphill struggle all the time and it's exhausting. And I think it traumatizes people. And I feel like a lot of leftists I know have gone literally insane mm -hmm. uh, because, and I feel it in myself. There's sometimes one is just struck with a sense of futility and defeat. And it's why getting letters is 
is nice. Oh, there's somebody out there actually good. Um, So it it takes a toll on people. And you see this with the arts um, subculture or the art scene, uh, which, which became more and more dependent on, on galleries and, and the, the curators at museums and especially on academia. Uh, most artists teach at art schools now. If we're talking painters, most writers, almost all poets teach at uh, university MFA programs. I mean, Robert Bly, to his everlasting credit, has never taught at a university as a regular as a regular professor, he just refused to do it. Um, but uh, but almost everyone I know, every theater artist, <clears throat> every playwright, uh, virtually teaches either privately, but usually at in some way at a university as a, as an adjunct at the very least. Uh, most of them now, if you're thinking of getting into theater, if you're thinking of getting into fine arts, you want to be a painter, you go to school to get an MFA Mm. uh, with the intention of somehow scoring some kind of gig at, you know, Southeast Oklahoma State Junior College or somewhere so you can feed yourself uh, because opportunities are, are, are very few and very few artists make much money uh, in any field. So it, but it's, so it's the same. And, and so I was wondering about, and I leave this open to, to others, to Varun, Corey, whoever, um, if this is not in a strange way happening in a, in a, in another register with doctors and, um, uh, the, the, they're so specialized, they're so over-specialized now that, and, and there's, the, their fields are so competitive and that, that they seem to know less and less of other things the more they know about their one tiny thing. Yeah. Um, and and uh, if you ask, you know, if you go in to have, have you know, have a doctor examine your cataract or you're not, it's not a bad, good, you know, you're this lump in your throat and they do some x-rays or whatever brain scan because you have migraines. If you then were to ask them a question about a rash on your hands, they would know nothing more about that than you or I. They, it's like they didn't, that's not their specialty. Um, and this is, this has changed, I think, over the last sort of 50, 60 years. So um, the, the entire, we're, we're just faced with this entire kind of architecture of uh, specialization, hyper constellate, like micro constellations of expertise that are isolated from each other, don't cooperate with each other, are competitive with each other in the arts, in science, in everything. And it has had a, um, a deleterious effect on 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 everyone and i think it has hurt psychologically the people involved in in these competitive um cl- you know the, the the atmosphere of extreme competitiveness this climate of competition that um that is that is bad for you uh, i mean and i always come back to just how unhealthy americans are and Corey mentioned obesity you know it's it's 
it's not just that it's the toxic food preservatives it's pesticides it's all of these things that and you know 137 million americans on antidepressants you can't escape that reality you know and it goes back to the from quote again too right um uh people are lonely and and isolated and they they present uh a sort of air sats community increasingly now online right that's supposed to be my friend the screen um anyway Corey, yeah yeah i mean just I mean, it's really insane to sort of have watched, you know, I've been involved in community activism and activism for years and years and I don't know, like uh, even decades, decade, decades, um, to watch the left, you know, now become a full-fledged lobby group for big tech, right? I mean, that's what it yeah. is. It's not defending nature and trees. It's like, let's cut down the, let's cut down the trees that are left to save the climate type of thing i mean it's crazy and now to see the left actually lot you know there are lobbyists for big pharma under the guise of social justice and it's so fucked up i mean it's it's just so um so crazy it's so hard to watch i mean it's um i mean it goes sort of no because it's just happening sort of slowly how do we not see this how is this how is this accepted that we're actually lobby groups for Pfizer, lobby groups for, you know, big pharma? How did that happen? How does someone see no issue? Why is it, you know, framed as right wing to go against these oppressive, oppressive dr draconian measures? Um, but well, that's if, the thing, but, right? but yeah. if you um, align yourself with Gates or Fauci or whoever, it's not right wing, right? Like all these strange sort of mechanisms have been put in place to keep us in our cages, you know, as but, but this is the thing that, that really strikes me. I, I don't mean to be interrupting you. Um, is how can the left, how can people who have a history of leftist um, beliefs and activism sometimes and any of it not recognize that the shredding of of civil liberties and and basic rights is a bad thing mm. how can that how is that not recognized you know aside from everything else even if they want to go get vaccinated even if they think covid's a terrible disease you how can you possibly yeah there are still problems i mean yeah yeah i i just this is what baffles me in a sense you know um how how can you not see uh uh governments without any democratic process with no due process without any discussion or debate just rule by decree like czars and say you can't leave your house you can't cross the border you can't do anything and it's all because of a disease with one percent half a percent mortality a disease a virus that is not the leading cause of death in any country in the world you know it's it's comes in right around like traffic accidents in most places um it's staggering it's just staggering the the kind of cognitive dissonance involved in any of this okay um varun anybody yeah i think it's also it's um i think it it's become more apparent that the difference between um habit behavior 
and the ideolo ideological structure is now, the chasm has grown much larger, right? Basically, that's what's happened as far as we can see it. Because the reconciliation with, for example, in India, what is now being termed as a right-wing government <clears throat> is now privatizing state, state assets to the tune of $81 billion, right? And that's that's got people tied up in knots. They don't know what to do. They, nobody knows how to react to this because the behavior of a certain group is now not aligned with how they think. That's the confusion, right. essentially, right? Like, and I mean, I just add like a small anecdote, which I will, I like to kind of exemplify this with the when I or let's say four people walk into a store and they buy the very same object then who who believes in what kind of political philosophy if they're buying the same come to a place now where that has become a lot more detrimental to us than as as a people then whether we believe the right or the left i think that's what has happened and going back to um, what you were saying about spontaneity mm. i think the internet granted people the place where spontaneous subcultures were forming and so it has become an imperative for empire to control that entirely mm. Because that has to be shut down because yeah. the internet became an avenue for people to do, talk, think and be whatever they wanted. And in that way, they could kind of um, translate that into physical environments. Mm. And that has been the biggest danger against, um, against how the patriarchal network, the violent network of the anthropocentric ideology has functioned, mm. I think. Mm. And yeah, that's, that's what was on my mind. No, I think, <clears throat> I think these are, I think those are great points. I was just reminded this week of, um, cause one of the things a lot of letters have commented on emails, um, is that that people appreciate the reading lists we kind of haphazardly all of us um, throw out there? So one book I I was reminded of this week was uh, was Listen, Little Man by Wilhelm Reich. Uh, it's a little a little kind of very short um, uh, piece that 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 he wrote, but people should also read um, Mass Psychology of Fascism and, and Compulsory Sex Morality, all of it. Reich, this is another thing that has happened I, with the left. I, there's so, maybe it is the academicizing, that's probably not a word, of the left, but, but you, you know, the Frankfurt School is attacked like routinely. And I always think, why, what is that? Um, and 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 there is a a kind of strange um interesting like like these these minor meaningless battles that go on and and but but the but the the writers the thinkers that are most attacked always seem to me the ones that are most crucially needed right now marx freud you know um, the frankfurt school gramsci uh uh wilhelm reich wilhelm reich is is mercilessly attacked um um i i got into a fight with caleb maupin um 
and I'm only outing him on this because he, he also tweeted about how happy he was he got his second dose of vaccine um, because he was he was attacking right. Um, and clearly had never read him. And but but it's these strange reputations that 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 have grown out of a kind of cancel culture on campuses now. It's a, it's a nightmare. It's the it's the death of Western culture. That's for sure. Um, Corey, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add. Um, I want to read a couple, like just a few sentences out of a really great article that I published off of. What? Let me think. It's from. Um, lockdown skeptics and um, it's published on wrong kind of green the titles the pandemic response as contemporary imperialism is written by um addison Rees, a lawyer political science um, philosopher and civil rights and civil liberties advocate who's based in new york and i just want to read a couple and then maybe we can link it put a link to it john under the podcast sure yeah yeah, once again, we see the privileged white upper class acting as missionaries to spread their beliefs as absolute truth to classes of people they deem inferior to themselves. The modern day savages whom they must tame, control, and manipulate in service of their supposedly objective worldview. Um, the supremacy attitude and the entitlement to control others and deprive them of rights and privileges are the hallmarks of imperialism. The same qualities that have undergirded all the major human atrocities of the past and those underway and to come. That's great. Hmm. Um, it's a great thing. The whole thing is great. I mean, it's really, really good. No, I will. I will make sure the link is posted. Send it to me, and we we should. Anybody who wants links, um, you guys, um, we we can always put them up when when we when we post the podcast. Um, uh, yeah, I, I. But yeah, Johan, you wanted to say something. So yeah, yeah, I just thought about what you said about um, doctors as as being kind of narrow specialists. And I, I think that's a, that's an important point because maybe especially doctors are, are nowadays these narrow gears in a, in a machine with well rather little knowledge of what the other parts do, so they inevitably trust the authority of the the other specialists in their their respective kind of myopic fields as well as the whole machinery which which feeds them as a group. And also every time somebody on the left disregards my arguments it's because i'm outranked by some authority because i'm not a specialist in a relevant field and i i was just thinking you said that in the art world there is also this acquiescence yeah and but isn't it the case that to some extent the artist in in the modern capitalist society has become also this narrow specialist that performs his function and isn't supposed to to muse on this stuff outside of his field or pur purview and so on well this is this is an interesting a really interesting topic and and it's complicated it's but but let's touch on it maybe next podcast we can dig into it more i think what my experience has been now that now that I'm getting so fucking old, but my experience has been that that I was aware of changes taking place in uh, the the field I was interested in, you know, in theater and then in film when I worked in Hollywood, and 
I, I noticed it in, in, you know, literary circles, poets I knew when I was in New York and, um, and, and painters, when I got back to California, I was connected with a bunch of painters, um, even in dance. Uh, and, and I was aware of it, but it was, but I, but I never, it never made it to the front of my consciousness. It was always in the background. I was aware certain things were happening, <clears throat> but I didn't connect them to, to other issues. I, I didn't see the importance. When I look back now, one thing I'm absolutely certain about is that the systematic killing of, of the, the 60s, for lack of a better term, the, 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 the way in which the state and then giant corporations and the ruling class circled the wagons after the 60s, after Vietnam, after the civil rights movement, and decided we can't have this <clears throat> happen again. And they effectively employed a massive propaganda campaign to, to stop it and, and to ridicule it and belittle it and undermine its effects and accomplishments and all the things that people fought incredibly hard for. And then in the 70s and 80s, especially 80s was like a fulcrum for, for so many things, I think, the way in which reality was represented. It was the, it was the intensification tenfold of, of infantilizing the culture. That was the beginning of, of baby talk and, and making adults into children, that, that that was a good thing. It was the banalization of aesthetics as well. Um, mm. and, and I think, you know, one of the things I tell people, I used to tell people this at the film school, I said, you know, you, just, you have to go back and look at movies made in the 30s and 40s. You have to go back to silent films. Um, just start there. Start looking at those films. Then when you get up, and you start looking at contemporary films, you, you will have a frame of reference and you will understand why Hitchcock was profound, you know, why Douglas Sirk was profound, John Ford, um, let alone Antonioni and, and, and Kurosawa and Bergman. Um, the, the depth and complexity of, of um, those films, the level of writing, I mean, I was just looking at, Michael Wood had a thing in the London Review of Books about Betty Davis, and he was talking about Dark Victory, which I think was 1939. Um, Casey Robinson wrote the script, and he was a guy who did almost only adaptations. And um, and Dark Victory is based on some like minor work, I believe. But anyway, um, and it's a great script. It's a hysterically funny script. It's a witty script. Um, and this is just a very minor film. It's a melodrama, what they used to call women's pictures. Um, but anyway, the deterioration of, of the avant-garde, of, of audiences, I, I did recognize that by the 80s. Like, where have the audiences gone? Where have the informed audiences gone? Many of them died, and and we were starting to see, you know, by the 90s, first generations raised with screens. Um, infantilized uh and there was this this assault um, a massive psychic assault by madison avenue at that point and by the u.s state department and and all the rest of it and 
in some sense, you know, the, the propaganda peaked with 9-11 and then the anthrax, you know, hysteria and, and naked propaganda that surrounded all of that. Anyway, my point being that that when I look at it now, I think it happened incrementally. You know, it's the boiling frog syndrome, right? We 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 didn't know when to jump out of the pot. And um and and we were all aware of it, I think, but didn't vastly underestimated its importance and didn't connect the dots to, to the full effect of what was happening. Um, Hiroyuki. Thanks. Um, well, um, um, and then Varun. Yeah, I guess I'm sorry. I'm getting you guys all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hiroyuki and then Varun. Please. Um, um, I think, um, um, specialization is, a huge uh, momentum, like uh, you just described, uh, people are being cornered into their specialties um, and uh, alienated and um, uh, losing the grasp of the bigger picture. And this is one thing, but um, 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 at the same time, if um, any field that requires deep understanding, uh, um, expansive knowledge would um, allow you to see some kind of bigger picture. You know, it's a necessary thing. Like, you know, I, I just work in the studio and make things and I can tell that we have to see material reality. Hmm. We really can't put hierarchy onto understanding to grasp the essence of yeah, yeah. Uh, dynamics. So, you know, even for a painter, I understand instinctively, it's crucial to understand what Marx said. There's a fundamental things that echoes with my practice in the studio. So- Absolutely, I, yep. Yeah, I, I would guess that Anyone who's serious about anything would learn about facts of life. But the problem I think is that in the process of uh, uh, practicing, we are subjugated to uh, this uh, structural framework of capitalism. There's a selection process going on. If you believe this way or that way, you can go forward. But if you don't, you're going to be prevented. And this selection process is everywhere. It's 24-7, it's all the time, on every layers of our society. And this is the, the thing that's killing everything, basically. Killing the culture, yeah. killing the art, killing um, 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 education, education. Uh, um, medical system, uh, doctors would go along with anything, teachers wouldn't oppose kids doing this or that with masks and uh, social distancing. <laughs> they can't say anything because they can't think. You know, they, they're just working within the framework, just trying to do what they're being told. And, um, and as you go upward in the structure, the pressure is bigger and bigger. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. this uh, invisible um, uh, pressure, invisible structure of imperialism and capitalism 
is uh, very strong, very strong. And we really have to see it and point it out. Um, I, I guess that's what we're doing here. But uh, that, that's what it is, I think. That's, that's, that's the yeah, I, I hope. Um, Varun. Yeah, I was, uh, I think what Hiroyuki just said is, I mean, I've experienced it myself in life with the filmmaking business in India. But um, to relate it in the sense that that is a necessity because that's one of the primary filters that are used so that the frothing of life is, um, is stopped. And I think what the example that John, you gave about the 60s and what I was talking about that subcultures were forming and there was spontaneity available and it was becoming something. I think mm. that's, that's kind of a repetitive historical movement then if we can look at it like that. That's a pattern that every time that society starts to reconnect, then there is a mechanism or a new mechanism which has to be installed so that the structure remains the same. Right. right. You know, that's another that's another writer that is worth reading is Rene Girard and and um, Violence in the Sacred, but also his book called The Scapegoat. Um, that that Girardian mechanism uh, uh, of, of sacrifice, the constant need for for sacrificial victims is, is really profound. And and people quibble with aspects of him and and. I think with good reason because he universalizes something that is is class mediated. But um, but those books are profound and and uh, yeah, I I you know um, this is also I, it's like a yeah. like a caste system that is being imposed right now, right? Like absolutely like the myopic ideas of how people are going to be only super specialized. But not like Hiroyuki was saying to have a general idea of real facts of life, and so you're you're keeping people away from the true understanding of what it means to be a living being. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you're right? killing real life. They can't experience yeah. real life because they're, yeah. they're keeping them from real life and killing right. real life. Yeah. Um, you know, the only two artists off the top of my head that I have seen protests were Eric Clapton and Van Morrison, right? Rock yeah. and roll guys. Both of them in their seventies. Mm. Oh, yeah, that well, I just saw this uh, statement by this uh, conductor. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah I forgot his name. Uh, well, um, yeah, but boy, the, it's few and far between. Um, mm. uh, there's just it, and also the other. Oh, and then we'll get sort of final thoughts from people. But, but the other kind of overriding reality that i sense i feel it is how fearful people are people are so scared they this propaganda campaign has and that's something that next time we should talk about more it has been very effective and it has scared people and you know one of the dangers of talking about statistics and numbers and how many died and it, even though in in many ways the CDC and, and World Health Organization, I mean, even though they, they manipulate things and they obfuscate, the, they, don't, they don't hide it fully. It's out there. We know the reality. But, but people, people are exposed to mainstream media, mainstream news. And they, and they always, you know, their, their comeback when, when you question the narrative is to say, but, but, but I just read there, you know, 75 children at nine years old, and they all died of COVID in Tallahassee yesterday. 
Um, and the hospitals are overrun and they're all overrun with children, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, and I don't have, I don't know. I don't know where that story came from. I know that I see incredibly clumsy propagandistic items. You know, my husband died in his final words in my, in my arms where I wish I had been vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, it's cartoonish. Um, mm. but, but it's like the, you know, I noted this on social media, you know, like the, 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 this mem of, of Afghans handing their children to U.S. soldiers on the ship. I mean, God almighty people, if, if, you're, if your like bullshit meter doesn't go off at that point, then there's, there maybe is no hope for you. I don't know. Um, but, but that's what one is up against. Anyway, Johan. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in a, in a book uh, recommendation. Uh, and I, I think you put it very well here, Yuki, that this, uh, this hyper-specialization that, that I think characterizes almost every field of society, that that is basically alienation in every sense. And you, you said it much better than me, but, but one of the, the main ways, I think, of to, to actually counter this ubiquitous propaganda is to, to somehow broaden your knowledge, because counter-propaganda is, is neither meaningful nor really desirable, I think. And so the book I was thinking about is a, it's a short book series that, that you probably know of by, by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Space Trilogy. It begins with a, a novel called Out of the Silent Planet from 1938. And it's interesting because it kind of challenges this um, scientific trope of the sci-fi because it construes the story via theology and, and fantasy instead. Um, I'm going to recommend a book. I may have already done this on this podcast, and that's A Diary of a Man in Despair. Yeah. Um, Frederick, I can't pronounce his last name and I don't quite remember it, but he was a arch conservative German and it chronicles his observations uh, to, uh, about the, on the rise of national socialism in Germany. It's, it's a brilliant book and very timely right now. Um, uh, so yeah, any other final thoughts from, from people? Um, I just wanted to say the person that Hiroyuki was referencing, um, and I mean, this is great on his part. I believe the pronunciation is Raynar, Raynar Bolin, and he was the chorus director of the San Francisco Symphony. Yes, so right. he stepped down because of the medical apartheid that he sees happening. So, yeah, um, right on. You know, that's good for him. Yeah. yeah, indeed. I um, I, can, I wanted to read a Marilyn Buck quote, maybe to close. Yeah. Um, to embark, to even embark on a strategy of rebuilding and realization to renew a liberating vision of justice and human rights, we must be clear about the strengths of state power and be prepared to defend ourselves against that power. The repressive apparatus is powerful with its fingers stretched into every crevice or crack in the state's hegemony it can find. And, and so we're not supposed to be on our knees, um, you know, um, bowing down to this power. We're supposed to be defending ourselves. Yeah, power, so. absolutely. I think people need to become much angrier. And and one final tiny comment. This is off what, what Johan was saying and Hiroyuki was saying. Um, and, and that is, uh, you know, people ask me often what book should i read about you know learning to be a playwright or something about 
you know, and I say nothing about that, you know, read a book about, you know, the, the, the history of bonsai, you know, read a book about medieval China. I don't know, read histories of um, the Roman empire, you know, uh, it, somebody asked Gary Snyder once how to be a poet, right? And he said, um, go out and learn carpentry or something like that and get really good at it and then and then come back and start working on your poetry. Um, and that's what Varun was saying. I mean, it, 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 people have stopped living real lives and that that segues nicely to the quote that we began with, right? Um, people don't live their lives anymore. I mean, they are now cowering but they, a certain class, you know, an unfortunately influential class. Um, because I think the majority of people know sense in some way, even if they can't articulate it quite, um, that something bad is going on, something nefarious is happening, and that in some way or other it needs to be stopped. So, okay. Um, thank you, Varun. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Hiroyuki. Thank you, Johan. As always, thanks to Jack Littman in Los Angeles. And um, Corey, send me those links. Everybody send me links you want, and I will post them when, when this podcast goes up. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Thank you.